Well, good morning, Bethel. And good morning to all that are joining us uh, via live stream this morning. We're glad that you're with us. Um, for those of you who maybe haven't been here all the last several weeks or haven't tuned in all the last several weeks, we're working through a passage. Uh, we're working through the book of Colossians. And uh, I thought I'd start off by just kind of doing a very brief, very fast summary of where we've been so far for the sake of those who maybe haven't heard all the messages. So the title of this sermon series is Christ Over All. And in which, in, during this series, we've learned of Paul's directing the church of Colossae to do the following. Thankfulness. Paul expressed his thankfulness to God for the faith that the church has in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints, chapter 1, 3, and 4, due to the hope that is laid up for them in heaven, that is, the gospel, the word of truth. Knowledge. Paul goes on in chapter 1 to say how we, meaning he and Timothy, never cease to pray for the church, that they will be, quote, filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's the reason why. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. My brother Al gave me a very clear visual of how this works when he shared that God's will leads to thanksgiving and thanksgiving leads, I'm sorry, knowledge of God's will leads to thanksgiving and that thanksgiving leads us to desire more knowledge of God's will. And as he said, it's not a vicious circle. It's actually an upward spiral. As we learn more of God's will, we're more thankful. We want to learn more. We're more thankful. And on and on we go. Tyler walked us through the powerful message in the middle of the chapter one that speaks of Jesus Christ being preeminent over all. Paul makes clear that Jesus is the creator of all that he precedes all of creation, that he is the head of the church, that he is fully man and fully God, and that he is the instrument of peace between God and man through his blood poured out on the cross. Pastor Derek walked us through the sufferings of Christ for our sake, and that we are called to serve him through our suffering service to others. We'll touch on this a little bit later today as well. Paul tells us that he toils and struggles in his service to others and that the service will strengthen us towards maturity in Christ. In chapter 2, Paul again instructs us again that we are to so walk in him and abound in thanksgiving. Paul warns us to not be drawn off of the truth of the gospel by, as he referred to in 2.8, philosophy and empty deceit. He reminds the church at Colossae that it is from Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and nothing else by which man is reconciled to God. It is not the physical circumcision, circumcision of the flesh or the earthly, but rather the spiritual circumcision of the heart by which Christ saves a man. Disqualifying. Chapter 2 ends with Paul encouraging the church to not allow men to condemn them through man's traditions and rules of food and drink, festivals, new moons, or a Sabbath, as these are but a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Paul goes on to say that the regulations of the world, seen in the do-nots of verse 21, have no value in stopping the indulgence, which is the sin of the flesh. And then as David so clearly taught us last week, Paul then tells the Colossian church that if you've been raised with Christ, then you are to have a new mindset, a new vision, where we set our minds on things in heaven, not setting our minds on the things on earth. He specifically instructs them, us, to put to death what is earthly in us. What are those things? He tells us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and coveting, as well as anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. Paul does not just leave us with what to put to death or put off, but he also tells us what to put on, similar to the wording of putting on the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Here he states that as God's chosen ones, we are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness, patience, forgiveness, but above all else, put on love, which brings things together in perfect harmony. So around 18 years ago, Janet and I had the privilege of teaching first and second grade Sunday school here at Bethel, and we were joined by Marion Howe. And for those of you who know Marion Howe, Marion Howe has a passion, an absolute passion for missionaries. And so weekly, she would bring in a book on missionaries, and she would read to the children these stories about the missionaries. One of the Sundays, she brought in this story where she told of a father and a mother who, along with five young children, were called to serve as missionaries, I believe if I'm remembering accurately, in Africa. Once the family completed language school and training, they moved to their new home in a new country, which was a structure of some sort that was located on the edge of a field with very high grasses. Shortly after the family moved in, the father began teaching his children how to move silently through the grasses. They practiced nearly every day. Then he taught them to move through the high grasses without making the grasses move. The children learned quickly how to do it with lots of practice, and they loved spending this time moving through the field quietly and making them not move because they enjoyed the time spent together with their father. The children followed their father's rules about moving through the high grasses week after week and month after month. They looked forward to it like a family game. That father was aware of many things the children knew nothing of, not the least of which was the tribal warfare in the area. After the family had lived there for a couple of years, late one evening, machete-wielding men came to their home and tried to attack the family. The father had prepared his family in advance for their escape, unbeknownst to the children. The because of the father's wisdom and foresight, the family escaped safely that night. The story reminds me of how our Heavenly Father prepares us for our one true enemy who tries to devour us in some way every day. Which brings us to our passage today in Colossians 3.18. So many of your Bibles will have subtitled Rules for Christian Households. So we can picture, as we go into Colossians here, we can picture the church of Colossae all gathered together for the reading of Paul's letter and hearing to this point Paul's encouragement, exhortation, and admonishment to all of the brothers and sisters, young and old, male and female, slave and free. The instructions are heard in the plural you or other plural nouns. Like when a teacher addresses an entire class, you listen with corporate ears, but you probably tune in a little bit more when they call on you by name. Verse 18 is kind of like a turning of a page in this letter. It's a turning in the page in that Paul now shifts the letter from general instructions to the church to now specifically addressing three relationships of the Christian household. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, bondservants and masters. It's noteworthy and significant that Paul addresses the women, children, and bondservants as equal members of the Christian household, and he addresses each of them first in each of the three relationships. Of course, this also confirms that all of the church would have been present together for the letter. How do we know that he is addressing them as equals in the household? We need to know, look no further back than in verse 11 of this chapter where Paul writes, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, bondservant, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul does not remove their identities or uniqueness, but he does make clear that there is, as David said last week, the earthly life of the flesh, the dog that we want to starve of all unrighteousness, and the spiritual life, the dog we want to feed more and more so that our hearts, minds, and eyes are fixed on him and his kingdom's ethics. 
Thus, in the church, all are equal. Now, Paul addresses how there is equality and distinct roles within the household of Christians. What is our model for this? Nothing less than the Trinity. We know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in power. As we saw in chapter 1, Jesus was there at the very beginning and is the creator of all. We also see in the Gospels, for example, in Luke, 2, Luke 22, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, fully God and fully man, equal in power as the creator of all, submits to the will of God the Father as they have different roles in the redeeming of man to himself. So if you want to try to oversimplify or boil down this passage of relationships within the household, we see six people types, wives, husbands, children, fathers, bondservants, and masters, in three different relationships, marriage, parenting, and work, given six commands in eight words. Ready? Wives, submit. Husbands, love. Children, obey. Fathers, don't provoke. Bondservants, obey. Masters, treat justly. So let's look at the first point, and that's marriage. And this is where we'll spend a lot of our time this morning. Verse 18 starts with instructions for the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, so let's take a look at what the text is saying and what it's not saying in the full context of the word. Isn't it wonderful that God can exhort us with instructions in his word that are so simple and straightforward? He makes it very direct and easy to understand, if not to live out. His instruction or rule via the pen of Paul to the wives is summarized in one word, submit. Also note that the instruction is given to the wife. While the husbands are clearly there in attendance, he does not tell the husbands to tell the wives to submit. The word of submitting is given by God to the wives. Thus, husbands, this is the point where you keep your elbows in, okay? Much of our society is built on the ideals of liberty, freedom, do your own thing, be your own person. Some messaging in our society tells women that men are not to be followed or trusted, that giving honor to a man is demeaning to ladies. Where does this come from? And more importantly, what does God have to say about all of this? Let's look back at the passage that Jemmy read so beautifully for us this morning. Turn to Genesis 2, or we'll have it up on the... Uh, screen, starting in verse 18, where God says, now this is, this is on the heels of the creation account in Genesis 1, where God declares everything good, but he starts off with, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It continues with man, Adam, having all beasts, birds, living creatures, livestock brought before Adam to name them. And then in verse 20, he says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God causes Adam to sleep, removes a rib, and made or built a woman and brought her to him. In verse 23, Adam cries out, sings, I think very happily. This is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So we see in the creation story that woman was created from man and that she was created for man, a helper fit for him. In other words, an order is brought to the creation of God's image bearers. But what happened next? So in the passage that Jemmy read in Genesis 3, we see that the image bearers were not fully pleased or content with God, his creation in the order which he placed them. So verse 6 picks up. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took a bit of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they, know that they, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's happening here? While God clearly established an order of the man and the woman, the woman, Eve, does not fall under that order and decides on her own to eat of the fruit that God had said to not eat. Then she gives it to her husband, and he ate. And the woman and the man have both disregarded the order that God set up. And instead of them resisting the temptation of the serpent and obeying God's command, they reverse the order and the reversal and fall of mankind commences. Is this not the brokenness and fall of the creation that we continue to see today? We see it in broken marriages, broken homes, poor relationships within families, within church families, within communities. We see it in criminal activity, violence, injustice, lust, covetousness, lying, stealing, cheating, and the list goes on and on with examples of how man and woman push back, rebel against God's will and plan, his order. And the results are never good because sin cannot bring about anything good. As Pastor Chris has shared with us several times, I brought this for moisture, but it's also good for this example. If you shake a bottle of water with the cap off, what comes out? Water, right? In other words, whatever fills our hearts, minds, and souls is what comes out of us when the world shakes us. If a man or woman are filled with what is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, evil, anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, etc., the old self, then that is what is what comes out when the world tempts us and shakes us. Rather, if we are in Christ and he is over all in our lives, what comes out as we have the spirit rule in us is compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love. So the wife is called to submit to her husband. Because I say so? Because Pastor Chris says so? Because Bethel Church says so? No, because the Lord says so. As it is stated in the second part of verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. So let's be clear here. There is not a submission to a husband. This is not a submission to a husband that directs a wife towards ungodly behavior. It is not fitting in the Lord to ever cause another to sin. Should a woman always submit to the selfishness of her husband? Of course not. We also have to be clear, ladies, that this statement is not an if-then statement. You know, if, if he will fill in the blank, then I will fill in the blank. Or when he does this, then I will do that. The wives are called to submit to their husbands because that is the order God has established. And the marriage is to be a reflection of Christ in his church. The church submits to Christ and Christ loves the church. Paul says in Ephesians 5.32 that this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So why does the evil one so want to distort marriages? He knows of this mystery and the mirroring that Christian marriages are to present to the world, and he wants to do all and anything that he can to get eyes off of Christ. We also see that God establishes authority in the relationship, as we so clearly see in subordinate ethics in so many of our other organizations. In the Navy, the officers lead the seamen. In the orchestra, the conductor leads the musicians. On a sports team, the coach leads the players. The primary difference in the relationships that God establishes in Christianity is that we're all equal in the kingdom as he so clearly pointed out in Colossians 3.11. Here's what a 20th century theologian said about marriage. Marriage is, do we have this? There we go, thank you. 
Marriage is not a recipe for the subjugation of the wife, but a blueprint for her true freedom in a healthy, loving relationship. Here, the wonder, power, beauty, holiness, and transformation of the gospel can be seen, not just by her husband, but by her children and by her neighbors. Okay, so let me get out of the hot water here and go over to the other half of the relationship that I know much more about. So let's move on to the husbands. And now it's the ladies' turn to keep your elbows down. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is not the first passage in which we see this commandment to love. Matthew 22, 36, 40, when Jesus asked, teacher, which is the great, great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Very familiar passage to us all. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your, God, your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So men, how much greater should we be inclined to love our wife if the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself? Husbands, love your wives as the Christ, as Christ loved the church, as we see in Ephesians 5. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are our members of his body. There we have the how we are to love our wives. Not a to-do list, but a heart-level guidance and motivation. We are to love as Christ loved the church. Man, I've got a question for you. If you were to watch a replay of your thoughts, words, and actions over the past week, month, year, or in my case, 31 and a half years of marriage, if you were to watch a replay of that towards your wife, would a stranger watch and listen to it and wonder if you love her? Or would they know that you loved her? Certainly, not perfectly, because we are still sinful men saved by grace. But in viewing or hearing it overall, would it be clear that your wife is precious to you, loved by you, or, as we saw in that passage, cherished and nourished by you? One of the questions that we discuss in our men's time and home group, community group, every time we meet as men and I believe one other community group does this as well, is we ask each other, how are you doing with cherishing your wife? It often becomes a time of both encouragement and challenge. Do our wives know that we love them? Yes. But as Paul directs in verse 29, are we cherishing our wives? It takes effort, just as it takes effort to care for your own body. I ask about action because we can too often fall into the lazy approach of, yeah, I love her. I tell her that regularly. If it were enough, though, to tell, then our Savior would have just told us. And aside from our need for salvation, not laid down his life for us. You see, love is an action verb, not just an emotion. So Chris mentioned our family that I'm blessed by, my wife, Janet, and sons, Greg and Emery, daughters, Audra and Grace, and surrogate daughter, uh, Sarah, and surrogate daughter, Annie, and two wonderful daughter-in-laws, Maddie and Roz. And we were talking just the other day with Roz, and that's Emery's wife, and Emery Jr.'s mama, yay, was sharing wisdom that she and Emery gained from their premarital counseling last year. The pastor that walked through their premarital counselor with them says that when a couple is having issues 
and comes to him for counseling, he always, always without fail, starts with the husband. And his question is, is, are you loving your wife? This is not dismissive that a marriage is made up of two sinfully imperfect people, but it's a recognition that the husband is definitely called to the higher responsibility as he is called to be Christ-like in his love of his wife, and the wife is to submit as the church submits to, the church, to Christ. The husband is called to be the leader of the marriage. Christ's example is the servant leader, or in our modern, modern day vernacular, we would say a leader, not a manager and a boss. So to give you how we are called to love our wives, why don't we consider these ways? First of all, with sensitivity. As it says in the passage, do not be harsh with them. Do you put unrealistic standards or demands on your wife, either emotionally, physically, or spiritually, or maybe even financially? I grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia, with a guy who was one of nine children, and his father was a very successful attorney in town. His mom stayed at home to raise the, the baseball team, right? Nine kids, that's a team. His father was such a controlling man that his mom had to, had to call him during the day if she so much as had to go to the store to buy a gallon of milk or a loaf of bread. What love and trust does that convey to a wife? And we certainly don't want our marriages to be described by the lyrics of an old country song written by Shel Silverstein. And by the way, that's the man who wrote The Giving Tree. Great book. And this song is a tongue-in-cheek slap at chauvinistic men. But listen to the words. <clears throat> Put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans. And go out to the car and change the tire. Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe and then go fetch my slippers and boil me up another pot of tea. Then put another log on the fire, babe, and come and tell me why you're leaving me. That obviously is not the way of expressing loving servant leadership in our marriages. So men, be warned that we are not to selfishly play the submission card just to get what we want. Manipulation is not a characteristic that we see in Christ, nor that we should ever utilize. So here's a second how. Purposefully. Christ's work was purposeful. Why should we purpose to love our wives? To make her holy and blameless. To encourage her to the things of God and away from anything that would be a spot or wrinkle on her soul. Janet and I need each other in this regard. And I hope that you have or desire to have a marriage where you can hold each other to account in a loving way. The husband should have a desire to see his wife flourish in purity, grow and mature, become glorious. And her completion will be when she stands before the Lord. And husbands are to wash and prepare her for that moment. Proverbs 31, the passage about the excellent wife, gives much description of the wife. And two verses in particular address the husband. Verse 11, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. In verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. You see, the husband gains when he is purposeful to love his wife encouraging her to flourish in the Lord. Third way we, can, we men can love our wives is sacrificially. Love your wife the way Christ loves the church. Quite a challenge, men. The wife is called to submit as the church does, which is good, but not perfect. The man is called to love as Christ loves, which is good and perfect. So the husband's standard is nothing less than the cross of Christ. F.F. Bruce said the following, By setting this highest of standards for the husband's treatment of his wife, Paul goes to the limit in safeguarding the wife's dignity, 
and welfare. Finally, we are called to love our wives exclusively. You might think, well, of course exclusively. I've been married to this lady for two years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, whatever it's been. But our wives are not to share us with anybody, real or imaginary. Don't share yourselves with the internet, men, and you know what I'm speaking of. Make sure that your wife is the sole object of your affections, avoiding any unseemly activity. Do you interact with female coworkers, customers, service people any differently than if your wife was standing there right, right there with you? And be sure that your wife and every other woman you interact with knows that your infections are for your wife only. Proverbs 5 tells us to drink from our own cistern. So let's move on to the second relationship that Paul addresses. And if you're checking our time, uh, the second point is much shorter. Second point is on parenting. Paul now addresses the relationship of children and fathers, and just as in marriages, he addresses them in reverse order of how the culture would have been bent some 2,000 years ago as he addresses the children before the father. And here's how many may look at the role of parenting. You have this one up, Chad? Being a parent is like folding a fitted sheet. No one really knows how. If you've ever messed with one of those things, you know, right? That's Lenny Lemons. Now, hopefully, as we look into Scripture, we find that while Lenny's saying is funny, and a little bit of truth to it, right? It's ultimately not actually accurate. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Everything? Yes, as long as it is something that is pleasing to the Lord. Just as with the previous discussion on marriages, we see submission here as obedience is an illustration of what submissiveness means. The same, of course, is true for all of us, as we are all called to be submissive and obedient to the Lord. Children, young ones, teens, does this seem difficult at times? Do you often wonder, why does Dad ask me to do that? What is the sense of that? The answer, when fathers are desiring to lead their children well in the Lord, is found in Proverbs verse 22 verse 6 where it says train up a child in the way that he should go even when he is old he will not depart from it train yes train older kids perhaps teens will be thinking of the training that they do of, for all types of activities whether it be academic studies athletics art music hobbies or others another word that can be used to describe training is discipline and here are a couple passages to direct our thoughts in this. Hebrews 12:11 says, "For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it." Note, this is the discipline that properly and lovingly shapes our thoughts, actions and habits. <clears throat> and then in 1 Timothy 4, the second part of verse 7 and 8, it says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some, some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So think back to the story that I shared with you about Mary and Hal sharing with our first and second graders nearly 20 years ago. The kids of the missionary family had no idea why the father was training them by playing this game, right? To move through the high grasses silently and without moving the grasses. In that situation, disobedience in training and in life could have had disastrous results for the family. The same is true, kids, for the training that a Christian father has for his children. Though the results of disobedience can be far more disastrous, and last an eternity due to separation from your creator and savior. 
So finally, the obedience to your earthly father is training and a mirroring for the obedience you will be called to, walk, to it, be called to in your walk with the Lord Jesus. Let's go now to the fathers. Verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So, by a show of hands, who reads this passage and says, where's mom? Right? Why is mom left out of this question? We believe that God's word is without error, correct? We are also told not to take away from the word or add to the word. So obviously it's not that Paul was just getting a little tired here and maybe Timothy forgot to write it down. He intentionally directed this rule, this instruction, this command to fathers only. And some commentators questioning why moms are not included here also ask whether moms are as likely to need this instruction to not provoke. <clears throat> now, I can only speak of my own experience as a very flawed father that the possibility of provoking my children or discouraging them by being more like a United States Marine Corps drill sergeant in my training rather than a mentor is infinitely more likely than Janet doing anything like that. So fathers, be aware of being a taskmaster. Be aware of provoking your child via endless criticisms or harsh punishments. Fathering and mothering are very demanding roles where we are called to exercise wisdom and discernment that can only come from God. As Dr. James Dobson, the founder of the Focus, of, of Focus on the Family, says the following with regard to one of the most difficult aspects of parenting for us to navigate. Our objective then is not simply to shape the will, but to do so without breaking the spirit. And he goes on to say, to understand this dual objective of parenting, we need to clarify the distinction between the will and the spirit. The will, as we have seen, represents one's deeply ingrained desire to have his or her way. We're all born with that. The intensity of this passion for independence varies from person to person, but it exists to one degree or another in almost all human beings. The spirit is the means by which God effectually calls man to himself. We do not want to discipline our children to the point where we both shape the will and break the spirit. This is a very heavy responsibility that again, in God's order, is placed upon the father and the mother. In concluding these instructions for the family, the wife, husband, children, father relationships, is it too much to say that these instructions are an important foundation for a healthy society as well? Think through the consequences that are present in our world due to the breaking of these rules, the reversal of God's order, especially in the Christian household, proves itself to be chaotic in its effects on the family and why so many families, Christian or not, are broken. The hope that we are given in Christ and the instructions or rules that we are given through his word are the lighthouse's beacon to lead us in this challenging task. So let's move on to the final relationship that Paul addresses here. And that relationship is work. We'll call it work. The last relationship that he addresses starts in verse 22. And of course, as you already know by now, he first addresses the one that is thought of as lesser in the society, counter to what they would have expected. Starting in verse 22, we read, Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. <clears throat> So depending on the translation that you're using, and sometimes even within the ESV, you may see the word slave or servant or bond servants. It's imperative to point out 
that the Bible does not in any way condone the practice of slavery. All of mankind is equal in God's sight, as is stated again in Colossians 3.11. Therefore, God would not have his own image bearers enslave other image bearers or anyone else. So at this point, we have to understand the difference between the economic slave, which is more accurately referred to as a bondservant, and the slave as chattel or property, which occurred in America, as well as many other nations of the world, and tragically is still an issue today in some countries. To be brief, this economic slave of the first century would be one that is working in order to pay off a debt, or after the debt is paid, some willingly chose to stay in the employment of their master because they wanted to. Obviously, this is not true of early American slavery where the image bearer was seen as and treated as property or chattel. Today, in modern America, we have neither system. Thus, the best way to interpret this passage through our lenses and glean the application of it for our relationships is to view, <coughs> excuse me, view it as a work relationship between the employee and the employer. So by length of wording alone, it is clear that Paul focuses much of his effort on the employee. He instructs those that work for others the following. Obey in everything. As with family relationships discussion, there is the lens of God's righteousness to view this through. Do we obey if our employee is asking us to do something that's illegal, immoral, unethical, or against God's law? Of course not. But all else that he or she asks or demands of us, we see Paul telling us that we should, actually not should, but have to do. Having been an employee and an employer and now a business owner, I have experience of doing things that I just don't care to do or was not specifically, you know, my job, right? I also know that many times those areas teach me humility before man and grow me as a man as I do beyond what I'm comfortable or confident in. Paul also mentions this term, eye service. What's he mean by that? Quite simply, eye service is doing what is expected of you, is doing what is expected of you at your work only when the boss is present. But when the boss is gone, the effort drops, and in effect, you're cheating your boss and company. Let me be clear, as a way of exhortation and reminder of how Paul may address employees today, your company does not pay you for your time to be spent on personal projects, internet searches, phone calls, emails, or texts with your family, your spouse, your friends. And speaking with one of my dear sisters here at Bethel that manages a team at work, she shared that personal communication is one of, if not the biggest issue that she faces in her team getting their projects completed. So for time's sake, let's just skip down to verse 25. You are serving the Lord. But let me ask you this question. If you were to serve your boss and company or customers as though you were directly serving the Lord, would you do anything differently? Would you be more careful to work diligently with focus and purpose? This reminds Christians that we are actually to work as unto the Lord, not man. So finally, Paul instructs the masters, <coughs> excuse me, or employers, managers, bosses, in verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. To best illustrate this point, let me share a passage from one of my favorite business books written by John Beckett. The name of the book is Loving Monday. Kind of countercultural a bit, right? We always talk about Mondays being tough. Uh, John Beckett, I got to know of when Greg and Emery were at King's College because he serves on their board. So the context of this chapter from this book 
Loving Monday is that John, as the president and owner of the largest residential boiler manufacturer in the country, is being interviewed by an ABC reporter named Peggy. Peggy immediately inquires, John, how is your business different as a result of trying to apply biblical principles? Peggy had done her homework on the tremendous success, growth, and culture of the business, as well as the faith of the ownership. So this is a long passage, but I hope you'll see clearly how the masters are being directed here. Peggy, I said, it's probably in how we regard our people. Can you be more specific? Every business I know talks about the importance of people, but there are a lot of employees out there who have really been burned. They feel their companies care about everything else above them. I hear it all the time, the bottom line, shareholder value, return on investment. I know, John said. I see it firsthand. I personally inter interview final candidates for every job in the company. And I hear some very sad stories of how people have been mistreated in previous jobs. You interview them all? That's pretty unusual. Why do you do that? I began doing it many years ago when I realized how much it built understanding and trust with a new employee. I can see the value, said Peggy, but is there a biblical principle involved here? John says, I noticed in the Old Testament that ancient walled cities had gates and elders would sit by them, determining who came in and went out. I saw a parallel. Those who came through our gates as employees will have a profound impact on the success of our company. I try to assess character issues like a willingness to work, respect for authority, basic temperament. Will this person fit in well with our other employees? Basically, is he or she right for us? I even try to meet the spouses of candidates for senior level positions, helping them understand our company. And the track record, asked Peggy. Certainly, we make mistakes. But I believe the thoroughness has resulted in an exceptional workforce. Many have made the company their career, and we find a consistently high level of morale and pride. A good indication is how positively they speak about their work with friends in the community. I'm not sure we've touched on the key issue yet, John, just why the emphasis on individual worth. I think the important thing is to view people the way God does. We see that view initially in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. There, in describing creation, it says God formed men and women in his own image and likeness. That, that's really quite remarkable. Attributes unique to human beings, the capacity to think, reason, worship, understand joy and sorrow, use language, all spring from God's own nature. And when I saw this, it really changed the way I viewed not only myself, but other people. I concluded I must place a high value on each person and never look down on another, regardless of their station or situation in life. Peggy, there's something sacred about every individual. Since God attributes unique and infinite worth to the individual, each one deserves our profound respect. So the question for employees and bosses to ask themselves is, how would the people in your company describe how they are viewed by you or by the company? Are they treated fairly and justly as you remember that you too have a master in heaven? So perhaps, perhaps you're here or watching on live stream and wondering what some of these teachings are all about. Or maybe you're wondering, is this creator, capital C creator, that views all people equal in his kingdom, though with separate roles, who is this? Your understanding all starts, as it does with anybody in God's kingdom, with the recognition that you are not and never will be perfect and sinless on your own. That we are all born with this nature that strives to control our own lives and make ourselves into our own small g, God. The only way that imperfect men and women can be acceptable to an almighty, completely just, 
and loving God that is all good and cannot be in the presence of sin is for God himself to create a way to redeem or reconcile that creation to himself. All man-made religions require that the followers sacrifice of themselves in order to gain the approval of their God, though those gods are all flawed and offer no true hope for eternity. Followers of Christ are forgiven and accepted into God's kingdom based not on what they have done or who they are, but rather on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God the Son, who poured out his blood in order to atone or pay the price for our sins. This Jesus wants to save you from yourself and grant you a peace that's beyond anything you can possibly experience on your own. So if you want to know more about Jesus and the forgiveness acceptance and eternal salvation that he and only he can offer, please talk to someone here. Reach out to Pastor Chris or Tyler or any of the folks here, anybody here today. For those of you watching on live stream, email us at info at bbcde.org and somebody will be glad to connect with you and answer your questions. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, for him crucified, for him buried, for him resurrected. We thank you, Father, that though God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equal in power and might and majesty, that you show us that there is also distinct roles Lord, I pray that as we look at our relationships as husbands and wives or as children and parents or in the workplace, Father, that we would be submissive, that we would be obedient, that we would be loving. Oh God, we need the strength of your spirit to guide us and direct us. We need you, Father, in order to fulfill your command. And uh, Father, I pray a blessing upon the marriages and the families and uh, even in the workplaces, Lord, that we would be magnificent reflectors of your love to those around us. And we pray all this humbly and gratefully in Christ's name. Amen.